Well, one of the, uh, one of the many privileges of my, my work is that I get art. Um, not like understand art. I went to the art museum the other night. I don't understand art, but I get art. Uh, people bring me art. So after the first service, I got a kitten. But the significant thing, not only did I get a kitten, but it says, Happy Resurrection Sunday, which is kind of the historic greeting on this day. So why don't you practice that? Just turn to somebody near you and say, Happy Resurrection Sunday. Just greet someone around you. Say, that's good. That, all right, that's all. You can, you can get acquainted. You can get her number later, guys. Let's just stay on, on task here. Um, you know, you can try that later. It'll open up more interesting conversations than Happy Easter. Happy Easter is fine, but it tends to make us think about bunnies and eggs and things like that, and not inexplicably empty tombs, which the Resurrection Sunday is what it's, what it's really all about. What you may not know is that in Passion Week, the Holy Week, we call it the last week of Christ's life, a lot of the days have taken on throughout history special names. Some you know, they're familiar, uh, Palm Sunday, for instance. That was last Sunday, the Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, and they laid down palm leaves in front of him and cried out, Hosanna, the son of David. Um, Then, of course, you've got Good Friday, the day on which Jesus was crucified and the great good work of the cross was done, and the bearing of our sins was accomplished on, on Good Friday. Here at North Wake, um, we have a service on Thursday night, which is called Maundy Thursday, not Monday Thursday, Maundy Thursday. It's from a Latin word that means command or commandment, and that was the night Jesus gave His disciples a new commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. Now, the lesser known ones are things like Fig Monday. Fig Monday, that's when Jesus cursed the fig tree, okay? Um... Spy Wednesday, that's the night that Judas was likely recruited as a spy and paid money to betray Christ. Now, the other one that you may not know about is the one that would have been yesterday, Saturday. It's sometimes called Easter Eve for obvious reasons, but the one that I want us to think about this morning, it's called Black Saturday uh, for reasons that are obvious if you think about the fact that it follows the day of Christ's death. Think about it if you were a disciple. What that day would have been like, the day between the cross and Easter. Matt Woodley writes about it through the eyes of the disciples, and he says, Jesus was gone. Their dreams of redemption were gone. The hope of God with us was gone. The hope of forgiveness was gone. As they watched Jesus die, they also realized that the hope for Life beyond death was gone. Like everyone else, the disciples would die in their sins in every way imaginable. They had hit a dead end. From the perspective of Jesus' disciples, this was truly Black Saturday. This was the darkest of days. This is a day without hope. You know, that title from that little children's book describes it well. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day in a life of a disciple of Jesus. And it had, you know, the week had started fabulous. Palm Sunday, maybe tens of thousands of people out heralding Jesus, you know, crying out, Hosanna, praise. Um, and then there was that altercation in the temple with the money changers, and there were arguments with the leaders, and then 
Judas sneaking out on that Thursday night and all the disciples would abandon him. And then if things could have gotten any worse, he was arrested in that garden and taken at 9 o'clock on Friday morning. They nailed him to a tree and he hung there. And at noon on Friday, the skies grew dark. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus was gone. Um, The embodiment of their hope was gone. And Black Saturday had really gotten an early start on that Friday afternoon. There there was a Swiss theologian from a long time ago. His name was Emil Brunner. And he, he summed it up well. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs... Hope, such as hope to the meaning of life. And this was a hopeless, meaningless Black Saturday. And it couldn't have helped that they'd all failed Jesus. All of them, every one of them had failed him in his greatest hour, his darkest hour of need. So we're going to pick up in our teaching of the Gospel of Matthew today on those dark hours on Good Friday afternoon, just at the edge of Black Saturday. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. And in this this darkest of days, this right on the edge of Black Saturday kind of time, there enters a little glimmer of hope, and his name is Joseph. And I thank God for Joseph, okay, Uh, and his story here. We don't know much about him. Matthew tells us he was rich, which is not a particularly good thing in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember that Jesus says that it was... Uh, harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it was to cram a camel through the eye of a needle. But evidently, Joseph had overcome the barrier that wealth can be to faith, and he was, we're told, a disciple of Jesus. And if you read the other gospel accounts of Christ's life, you find out a few other things. He was a follower, but he was a secret follower out of fear of the Jews. You see, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that had tried Jesus during the night, And he was a dissenting voice in that council. Um, But here, here we find him boldly going to Pilate and requesting the body of Jesus, giving up his own tomb to honor Jesus with a proper burial. So on the blackest of days, right on the edge of the front end of Black Saturday, we have this little glimmer of hope. And his name is Joseph. Joseph no longer follows Christ secretly. He loves Christ publicly now. And uh, I wondered why, why would you include this story right before the resurrection? What's its, what's its purpose in between the cross and the resurrection? And I think on the one hand, it proves Jesus really was buried. Okay. Why did that matter? Because that means that he really did die. Because there have been a number of theories over the years that have been advanced that Jesus just swooned and his disciples revived him later. And no one has addressed that better than the radio preacher J. Vernon McGee. Uh, he, had a, uh, 
He had a woman who wrote him and said this. She said, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And J. Vernon McGee replied, dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days. Then see what happens. Um, Wait, way back in the 1500s, there was a confession of faith written. It was called the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. And this is what it said. Question, why was he buried? Answer, to confirm the fact that he really was dead. Okay. That's one of the reasons that this story was told, but there's, there's hidden in it another one. It's a yet another pointer to Jesus' identity. It's another subtle allusion to one of the great messianic prophecies um, of the Christ who was to come in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah 53, the great um, prediction of the Messiah and his death in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 says, they made his, speaking of the Messiah, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. So this story is another reminder. It's another indicator who Jesus was. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would rescue his people from their sin. And if it hadn't been for Joseph, historians tell us that the Romans would often just let the carcasses on the crosses to rot. They didn't even get a burial. And so I love the way Dale Bruner says this. It's as though Joseph's whole life was a preparation for this one day's work. He was the man who did one thing. That's all we know about Joseph. Um, and so uh, he did it faithfully, he did it courageously, and he did it on the darkest of days. And so Joseph's story, it's an example to us, right? It calls us to faithfulness on our blackest days, those, those horrible, terrible, no good, very bad days that we have, days when God seems absent or at least silent and our suffering is very great. Then, then we can remember the faithful love of Joseph for his Savior and how he honored him even when he did not understand. You know, it's interesting. It's like the darkness made Joseph bolder. I, I love Joseph. But there's another, there's another little glimmer in the darkness. I don't know if you caught it. The last verse we read from Matthew 27, verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So there are two ladies there, both named Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary were there. And uh, they, they had followed, faithfully followed Joseph to the tomb to see where their Savior had been laid. And what's really interesting, it's just a little interesting turn here, is that both at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life, we find a faithful Mary and a faithful Joseph on both ends of his life. Um, so this is for, for you who are disciples of Jesus to be encouraged. God strengthens disciples for times like this. 
And on your darkest of days, he is dotting the darkness around you with faithful stories of people just like this, who when they didn't understand and their suffering was great and the risk was great, they were faithful. And it calls us to that same kind of faithfulness on our dark days. But on the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, talking about Jesus, that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And you get a sense here that the religious leaders knew that kind of the linchpin in their strategy was that they had to squelch even the possibility of a rumor of a resurrection. And it's interesting that the religious leaders seemed to get Jesus' predictions about his resurrection even more than his disciples did. And so vital to their strategy was squelching the hope of resurrection before it would even start. And so they are willing to go once again and beg to Pilate, a man I'm sure they hated, let alone going before him and begging for a guard to make sure that nothing happened to the body. Why go to so much trouble? Why go grovel before Pilate again? Why get a guard and put them around the clock 24-7 for three days? What's at stake here? You know, there's a movie that's really swept swept our land. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, have, have seen it. It's called The Hunger Games, and uh, the basic storyline is that there's a 16-year-old girl who volunteers to take her sister's place in an arena where 24 teens will battle each other to the death. And uh, when this volunteer Katniss begins to prevail, it begins to give hope to her impoverished and enslaved home district, which really begins to trouble the powers that be and lends to this conversation Uh, with the president and one of the leaders. They, they understood that even the hope of a resurrection would have a powerful effect, so powerful that the leaders would post a guard 24-7 for three days around the clock to contain it. The hope of resurrection rooted in an actual resurrection would be unstoppable. That would change everything. Hebrews 
chapter 2 writes about the accomplishment of the death of Christ and by implication his resurrection when it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became a man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, at some level the leaders got this. That if the hope of resurrection got out, it would change everything. And they decided they would do whatever they had to do, whatever they had to do, to make that tomb secure. Three times that language is used. Make it secure. And so they went into Pilate. They got a guard and they posted it. But they could not contain it. After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went back to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like like dead men. It's interesting to note, whenever women are listed in the Gospels uh, who are part of Jesus' ministry, Mary Magdalene is always, always listed first. She's always the first. Um, And so she finds herself with the other Mary. All of a sudden, there are earthquakes and angels, and things are bright as lightning, and the guards are immobilized, and and it's not Black Saturday anymore. It's Resurrection Sunday. The angel then said to the woman, "Um, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay? Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So the angel is a messenger here, right? He gives directions for these faithful Marys. Uh, First, he calms their fears, right? Because there's been an earthquake, there's been an angel sighting, guards are strewn all about the ground like they're dead. Um, This is a pretty unnerving scene. So he calms the women, and then he does something interesting. He reminds them of Jesus' promise. He says, he has risen just as he said. And if you flip your Bibles back, way before Jerusalem, way before Holy Week, back to chapter 17, it says that they were gathering in Galilee, which is nowhere near Jerusalem. Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And so the angel dispatches them to tell the disciples, and they do exactly as they're told. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear, great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And so it's interesting. Uh, They are afraid and joyful. And some have wondered, is it possible for fear and joy to coexist? And I would say yes. Yes, happens all the time, happens in this room. Every time I perform a wedding, I have a bride and groom right here. Joy and fear coexist when they say, I do. It happens all the time, and it's happening here. The women are faithful messengers, but they're a really curious choice, right? If you're picking witnesses for the resurrection to testify, the first ones, 
Would you pick two women in a culture where women cannot even have, they can't, do not have the social standing even to be legal witnesses? Their testimony is discarded. Especially, would you pick someone like Mary Magdalene? It's purported that the Lord had cast out of her seven demons. And a past like that does not, does not a good eyewitness make. I mean, imagine the courtroom scene. I want you to call your first witness. I'd like to call Mary of Magdalene. Crazy Mary. Are you kidding me? Case dismissed. You don't even have a credible, you don't even have in this woman a credible legal witness. But, but the Lord chose Mary and the other Mary, not just to see the empty tomb, not just to hear the angel's message, but to be the first to encounter the resurrected Christ. It happens in the next verse. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So, if you were scripting this thing, and you, what words would you have the risen Christ? What would be his first words to his followers? Maybe like a discourse on his conquest of sin in the cross and resurrection, right? Or maybe, um, maybe insights about what life after death is really like. Well, here Jesus says the equivalent of, Hi. That's it. Hi. If he's from the south, he'd say, hey. If he's at my house, he'd say, well, hello there. That's kind of our greeting that goes around. Don't ask why. That's just the greeting that goes around. It's just your, this is the street greeting of the day. In fact, I'm told it's still used. But, but literally, the word means rejoice. And it's, it's perfect. And they took hold of his feet, and it says they worshiped. Um, the, the, the expression their worship means they bow down. And just, just as a bit of an aside, uh, the internet is a terrible place to learn about Christianity, okay? Don't. Don't, unless you have highly referred to places because any goofball can print anything they want on the internet. And uh, case in point, here there are some who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ, so they would say, the language here simply says they bowed down. And that is used in at least one other circumstance of someone bowing down before a slave master in the New Testament. So really doesn't have to mean worship. And like I said, you can make the Bible say anything, almost anything you want to. But if you sit under it and you just read it to discover its meaning and let it speak, what do you think's going on? They meet a guy who's fresh out of the tomb three days and they fall at his feet. What do you think they're doing? It's not an isolated act either. This kind of action followed Jesus around. I'm told at least 14, 15 times people are doing this. Here's an example, one of those times when the storm gets calmed and the guys in the boat worshiped him. They bowed down to him saying, truly you are the son of God. What do you think is happening there? And um, any kind of falling down in the Bible that's even remotely close to worship is reserved for God. Okay. Um, 
You remember this famous interaction with Jesus and the devil in Matthew 4. He's starting his ministry and the devil takes him around and tempts him. And so what's the devil do? He takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I'll give you if you'll fall down. And the meaning is so clear they added in our English Bibles, and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship, you shall fall down before the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. Um, you know, people, people in Acts tried to bow down to Peter after a great miracle, and he said, don't, don't do that. In Revelation, they try to bow down to angels, and the angels say, no, no, you get up. That's for God alone. The interesting thing about Jesus is he accepts it. He allows it. He permits it. He doesn't do what Peter did. He doesn't do what the angels did and say, no, 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 that's just for God. He welcomes it, as it were. What do you make of that? C.S. Lewis says, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he were God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. He says, among pantheists, like the Hindus of India, anyone might say that he's part of God, little g, or one with God, little g. There'd be nothing very odd about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, capital G, in their language, meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different than anything else. And when you've grasped that concept, you'll see that what this man was quite said, excuse me, said was quite simply the most shocking thing that's ever been uttered by human lips. And I agree. I agree Jesus is claiming to be God by his acceptance of worship. It's another revelation of who he is. This man is very God and very man. And the only right response to him is to bow down in worship and to serve him. But Jesus has other words here besides just, hey. Um, he says, if you'll notice again, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, there they will see me. Um, again, he calms their fears and he dispatches them with a message to the disciples. And by the way, this is a prototype of what's intended to be done with the message of resurre resurrection hope. You get it, you share it. That's why we're sending the Vahalas to check. We have it. We share it. Okay. Just like Jesus is charging the women here. But he doesn't, in this case, just send them with a message to convey. Jesus sends them to arrange a meeting with his disciples. Face to face, in person, in keeping again with what he had promised. Back in chapter 26, when Jesus predicted his disciples would desert him, he says, you'll all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, Jesus predicted, I will go before you to Galilee. He is keeping his promise. And so this proposed rendezvous with his disciples is an expression of his care and love for them. He says so much when he says, go and tell my brothers. That's the, that's the language that he uses there. 
Go and tell my brothers. Dale Bruner aptly points out that Jesus could have called his cowardly disciples lots of names not heard in the Bible at this point in time, and that would have been appropriate. But he calls them, even after they abandoned him in his darkest hour, you're my brothers. You're mine. And so, um, even after deserting him, he is eager to meet with them again in Galilee, just as he promised. Their unfaithfulness has not mitigated his love for them or his faithfulness to his word, not one bit. So you have this encounter with Mary Magdalene, of all people, and the message to rendezvous with his unfaithful disciples, of all people. All of this just drips with grace. Jesus is not setting up meetings with the worthy or the deserving. Jesus has risen for those who have been troubled by demons and those who have deserted and deny him. Jesus has been risen for us. And while the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So, At the same time, the women are bearing the message to the disciples of a resurrection hope. There's kind of a a counter-mission that's being started. Um, And that message of that mission is that it's all a farce. It's a fraud. Um, Perpetrated, oddly, by the same terrified disciples who are now willing at great risk to sneak past an armed guard to steal his body. It doesn't sound likely to me. Plus, the other problem with this scenario that was concocted is sleeping guards make lousy witnesses. Because if you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? And if you're awake and you're a guard, why didn't you sound the alarm when you saw him stealing the body? But regardless, I think you get the idea. There are two distinctively different takes on the resurrection here. Two different storylines. On the one hand, you have the naysayers. And it takes lots of different forms these days. Some say the disciples stole the body. Some say he only swooned, he wasn't really dead. Some, um, some forms of Islam propose a kind of switcheroo, a kind of mistaken identity. They'd say it really wasn't Jesus on the cross with somebody else. Um, others say it was just a spiritual resurrection, not a body one, bodily one. I don't know what that means, and I doubt Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are going to buy that one. Um, but that's one, that's one storyline that's going out from the resurrection. It's a fraud. The other storyline is that it's true that he has risen. And that this changes everything because he lives. You know, the emphasis in the resurrection accounts is not just or even primarily on the resurrection. Not a lot of details about him getting out of the tomb. 
The emphasis is on the encounters with the risen Christ. It's not just that He rose, it is that, but it's also that He is risen and He lives. He's available. He's encounterable. And because He lives, everything changes. I have a book in my office subtitled, 50 Reasons Why the Resurrection Changes Everything. With great restraint, I'm going to close with three, okay? You can buy the book if you want the rest. First, the resurrection means we can be sure that the burden of our sins has been relieved of us. Our sins can be forgiven. You don't have to bear them anymore. And I want to get at this kind of backwards from Paul's great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if we flip that around and we say, we could say, if Christ has been raised, your faith is valid and you are not in your sins. Our faith is not futile. It is verified. It is made sure. The promises of forgiveness of sins and newness of life in relationship with the Father, they now have the sure ring of truth to them. We are forgiven our sins in Christ. Now, a second thing that that the resurrection changes that's, I think, of great significance is that it enables us to live with hope even in the darkest of days. In those days, on our Black Saturdays, we can be faithful because we have this unshakable hope. It may be Black Saturday for us, but Resurrection Sunday is coming. And I ran across a fascinating account by a guy named Wesley Hill Wesley is a follower of Jesus, and and his burden, his great temptation that he struggles with on an ongoing basis is same-sex attraction. And he had just moved to a new city up in Minneapolis, and he's feeling very alone and very oppressed by this burden. And uh, as he fought against it, he, he traveled down to visit a friend named Chris in Chicago. And he remembers this from their conversation. Chris said to him, imagine yourself, Wes, standing in the presence of God, looking down from heaven on the earthly life you're about to be born into, and God says to you, Wes, I'm going to send you into the world for 60 or 70 or 80 years, and it will be hard. In fact, it will be more painful and confusing and distressing than you now imagine. You will have a thorn in your flesh, a homosexual orientation that's the result of your entering a world that sin and death have broken. And you may wrestle with it your whole life. But I will be with you. I will be watching every step you take, guiding you by my spirit, supplying you with grace sufficient for each day. And at the end of your journey, you will see my face again. And the joy we share will be born out of the agonies you faithfully endured by the power I gave you. And no one will take that joy away from you. Wes, Chris said, looking him in the eye, would you say yes to the journey if you had had that conversation with God? And Wes says that he nodded yes. And his friend said, but you have had it, in a sense. 
God is the author of your story. He's watching, supplying you with his spirit moment by moment, and he will raise your body from the dead to live with him and all the great company of the redeemed forever. And he asks him, can you keep walking the lonely road if you remember he's looking on and delights to help you persevere? Might not be your struggle. But you have a struggle. You have a temptation. You have something that dogs you and oppresses you and wants to pull you down day after day after day. Wes's advice is good for us. He says to us all, he says, your struggle isn't a mindless, unobserved string of random disappointments. He says, on that day I heard my friend Chris say, it will be worth it. The joy then will be worth the struggle now. And in the end, he says, I think that's how I'm learning to live faithfully. And whatever the shape of your struggle, whatever the shape of your suffering, there is a hope that enables you to live faithfully. It may feel like Black Saturday for you, but Resurrection Sunday is coming. This is our sure hope. And the last, the third thing I'll underscore, a 50, I'll underscore for you. We die different if we believe in the resurrection. Death is different for us. Um, and this surfaced for me early here at North Wake as a pastor, but I believe the very first funeral I ever did was the suicide of a non-believer. And uh, we were over in Building 2 in that little room with the shelf, and that was the most hopeless, darkest room I've ever entered. Friends and family and co-workers with no hope. And it wasn't, it wasn't that long after that that I was in that same room for another funeral, equally difficult in one sense. Um, one, of the, one of our North Wake pastors lost an, an infinite birth. Uh, some of you remember Ron and, and uh, Jan Donhart. And uh, you know, I still remember over there, Ron and his son Jeremy, his teenage son Jeremy over here to my left, um, in a worship service that they had designed to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, hope in the life of their little daughter, Danielle. Hands lifted, worshiping Christ. See, we die different. We face death different because of the resurrection. We no longer grieve as those who have no hope. His resurrection, you see, makes ours sure. Paul teaches us that. But there are two storylines here. There are two takes on the resurrection. Which one's yours? See, if you believe that the resurrection really happened, if you believe that Christ died on the cross to bear the sins of people like you and me, and that He rose on the third day to newness of life and offers that to us, then that changes everything, okay? Um, it's our pattern here at North Wake to close our services with song. It's our way. It's kind of a statement of faith for us. It's our way of confessing and, and in a sense, bowing down and worshiping before our God. And we're going to do that today with the lyrics to, this, to the song that go like this. I'll read it to you. I won't sing it. 
Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame, but fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love and bled for us. Freely you've bled for us. Christ, excuse me, is risen from the dead. Daniel, read that for me. (coughs) Excuse me. You can make that your confession today. Let's stand. Let's worship.